You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Welcome to Calvary. Welcome back to Step by Step. And Step by Step is a journey through the Bible that we're taking together. Uh, The goal is to familiarize ourselves with the books of the Bible so that we can become better students of the Bible. And we do so by providing surveys for each book of the Bible. And our journey has taken us as far as this New Testament book of Jude, and we'll provide some background and structural information. And then because of the brevity of the book, we'll take some time to walk our way through its verses. Um, Getting started, if if the book of Jude had a cover jacket, uh, it might on the back read something like this. Jude, the half-brother of Jesus and church leader, started out to write an encouraging letter to the saints. However, when he learned that false teachers had infiltrated the church, he deemed it necessary to write a letter of warning. Jude's going to use several Old Testament examples to to warn not only of the danger of false teaching, but the danger of false teachers. He's also going to encourage the believers to grow in Christ and to reach the lost. And so this short letter contains strong warnings, exhortations, and promises. So there's a gist of what this letter is all about. In terms of kind of some background information, Jude is the 65th book of the Bible. It is the 26th book of the New Testament, and it is the 21st and last of the epistles. Um, Jude, it's a short book, 25 verses. It can easily be read several times in a single sitting. Um, Although it is short, it's packed. And I'll repeat this several times. It's packed with warning and exhortation and promise. And so this book, as as we're venturing into the book, we should expect warning signs. Um, We should expect things that we need to be be aware of and beware of. We should expect exhortation. That is to say, we should be prodded. We should leave here recognizing there's things we need to do. There's things we need to pick up and put into practice, but it's also filled with promises. There are some passages in the book of Jude that are so comforting and encouraging. The book was written, as many of the New Testament books, somewhere around 60 AD. Um, The author refers to himself as a bondservant of Jesus and the brother of James. That's found in verse one, if you take a look. Verse one, Jude a bondservant of Jesus and brother of James. Now, brother of James, he's likely referring to James, the Lord's brother. In Galatians chapter um, one, Paul says, I saw no one except 
James, the Lord's brother. And it's commonly accepted that that James, the half-brother of Jesus, was the writer of the book of James. And Jude is the brother of the half-brother of Jesus, making him also a half-brother of Jesus. He also refers to himself as a bondservant. And that's a very common term that New Testament leaders use to describe themselves. And by doing so, they're embracing the leadership model that was, that was set by Jesus. Jesus said, I did not come to be served. I came to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. And he called those who would lead within his kingdom, lead within the church to follow that model of servanthood. The recipients also there in verse one, um, Jude gives no hint as to the location um, where these believers lived. We, we simply do not know. He refers to them this way. Verse one, he says, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Christ Jesus. And those are three very big theological or Bible words, called, sanctified, and preserved, and, and we might say that that, that that speaks to the comprehensive work of God in the life of the believer. Now, some of your Bibles, you may have stumbled there in verse one, because some of your Bibles don't use the word sanctified. Some of your Bibles read the, the word beloved, or loved instead, called, loved of God, and preserved. And that's an example of what's called variance in manuscripts. So there are literally thousands of ancient manuscripts of the Greek New Testament. Some manuscripts contain the word sanctified or hagios. Others contain the word beloved or uh, agapetos. And so the uh, scholars can't know for certain whether or not Jude wrote called, sanctified, and preserved, or called, loved, and preserved. We, we can't know exactly what, what uh, Jude put on parchment. But from the bulk of scripture, we can be absolutely certain that the child of God is both loved of God and in a process of sanctification. So this is a great example of, of, again, variance in manuscripts. It doesn't change New Testament doctrine, although we can't be 100% certain which word it was that Jude penned. Continuing, the content of this letter, uh, once again, it's a warning, exhortation, and promise. Let's look at the primary warning within the book. Verse three, Jude says, beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men, who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Ever get that really weird ringing in your ear? Okay, you're looking at me like you don't, so I do. So, as if I don't have enough noise in my head. <clears throat> so the, the, there's this strong warning. He says, I, I wanted to write to you about our common faith. I wanted to write this super fun letter about how awesome it is that, that we're believers and the sweet fellowship we have with Jesus and each other. But I had to write to you to contend because of these false teachers. Um, there's great exhortation. Look at verse 20. He says, but you, beloved, building yourself up in the most holy faith. So there's a warning about this, this false teaching and there's an exhortation to build ourselves up. And then finally, great promise. Look at verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. What a great promise. Now the purpose of this book is is uh, to contend for the faith. It's found there in verse three. Contend earnestly for the faith. The word contend is a word that means to struggle or to labor, or it can even carry the idea of entering into a, a, a contest to fight. It's, uh, the root is the word agon, agon, and it's, it means a place of a contest. It would be like an arena or a ring or the octagon. You would say, that's the agon. That's the place. You walk by, you look at the thing, you go, oh, something's happening here. You go, you come into perhaps an arena. It's a, it's a gathering point. There are different sort of athletic endeavors that, that take place there. And you come and they're, they're building a caged octagon in the center with the seats all around it. And you think, oh, I know what's going to happen here. It's going to be a bloodbath. There's a battle that's gonna go on here, agon. The, the word <coughs> agonizomai, we get our word agonize from. The noun would speak of the, the contest, the contest that's happening, and the verb would speak of the struggle itself. You might think of it this way. Years ago, there was a, a, a commercial, and it was for a television that was so vivid that it made you feel as though you were part of what was happening. And the commercial was a guy sitting on his couch and he's watching a football game and it's the kickoff. And it's so real as he's watching that suddenly the ball lands on his lap and he looks around and he's at the five yard line. And there's 11 men running full speed at him wanting to kill him. What just happened? He went from the noun to the verb. He went from watching the agonizomai, from watching the struggle, from being a viewer to actually stepping into the game. And this word is a word that speaks of the struggle itself. Jesus used the word when he told us that we need to strive to enter through the narrow gate. Paul used the word when he talked about his whole life. He summed up his life and he said that he had fought the good fight. He had agonized to the very end. Now Jude uses a slight variation on this word agonizomai. He adds a prefix. The prefix is epi. And what the prefix does is it modifies the struggle to make it more intense. That's why your English version translates it something like contend, that would be agonizomai, contend earnestly. Contend with intensity, fight with intensity. And so this book, what this book is about, Luke or Jude says, 
I started with one intent when, when I grabbed the parchment, I grabbed the pen, and I began to write. I had one intent in mind. I want to talk about our common faith. But when I observed what was happening, it became necessary for me to write to you to fight intensely, to contend earnestly, to agonizomai. Now, he tells us that we are to fight earnestly for the faith. Once again, if you would look at verse 3, I found it necessary to write to you to exhort you to contend earnestly for the faith. Now, this word faith, it's the Greek word pistos. And in its verb form, it means to believe. It's an action. So I'm believing. I'm, I'm putting my trust in something. I'm choosing to trust something. But, but here, Jude uses it in its noun form. And that is the body of what it is we are believing in. So, so from a biblical standpoint, faith matters but faith matters as it relates to the faith. It's, it's not, there's, there's not, from a biblical standpoint, a, a, a value in faith alone. There's a value in faith in the faith. That is to say, believing in the body of Scripture, what is codified within the Word of God. And so Jude declares that the Word of God or the doctrines contained within the word of God are worth fighting for. That is to say, the Bible declares certain things to be true about God, about human beings, about our relationship with God, how to have relationship with God, how to maintain relationship with God, how to live pleasing to God. These would be the doctrines within scripture. And Jude says, we contend earnestly. We agonizomai. We step into the battle. We get off the couch, into the game, to fight for the doctrines of scripture. These are truths worth fighting for. So it's necessary, this is a, a necessary exhortation because of those who, at the time of Jude, were twisting the truth of Scripture. Once again, look at verse 4. He says, certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for condemnation. They're ungodly men. And listen, who turn the grace of God to lewdness. Their turn is, it, it carries out of, they're turning, they're twisting something, they're changing something. And so Jude tells us that it's necessary for us to contend for the truth of Scripture because there are those who will seek to turn or twist the teaching of Scripture. This Jude's not alone in this. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 7. He said, beware of false prophets. So the, the word beware is enough of a warning, isn't it? The sign, the problem with us is that we are a culture of people who have been desensitized to warnings because we are warned of things we should never be warned about. Okay? I saw, I saw a meme once that said, you're the reason there's instruction on shampoo bottles. It's like, we're desensitized. Like, seriously, you need, to, you need to warn me about this? 
Okay, so we become desensitized to it. But the, the very fact that Jesus uses the term beware is something that ought to grab our attention. But then Jesus, as he so customly did, Jesus used very deliberate language. He said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. And he says, but inwardly they are what? Let's try it again. Inwardly they are what? Rat. What kind of wolves? What, what image did Jesus just paint in your mind? He's like, that's a serious warning, isn't it? This is not a, this is, oh look, they're, they're little cute, cuddly puppy wolves. These are ravenous wolves, horrifically dangerous. Paul used similar warning in Acts chapter 20. Paul said, for I know this, that after my departure, what will happen? Savage wolves. Jesus calls them rabid, ravenous, and Paul calls them savage wolves. They're, it's a serious danger. And so this letter calls us to defend or contend for the word of God that is under attack in every generation. The word of God is under attack. That's the warning. Now, to reach this goal of warning the reader, um, Jude is going to use a lot of resources. We've talked in the past about the fact that one of the things that makes discovering meaning of a Bible book difficult is the, the expectation that the author has of the readers in terms of their Bible IQ. J Jude expects you to know a lot. Jude will refer to six different Old Testament events. He will refer to the Exodus. He'll refer to an obscure event that is, an, is a fall that happens in the angelic realm. He'll refer to the destruction of the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. He'll also refer to three individuals. He'll refer to the story of Cain, the story of Balaam, and the story of Korah. And these are all designed to help illustrate the, the, the deadly nature of the false teachers and their teaching and our need to contend for the faith. Jude also refers to some sources outside of the Bible that would have been common knowledge to first century believers, although it's very obscure to you and I. He'll refer to a non-biblical event, pause. There's a difference between non-biblical and unbiblical. Okay, we might say three things. Something is biblical if the Bible specifically addresses it. Something is non-biblical if the Bible doesn't spe specifically address it. Something is unbiblical if the Bible specifically addresses it and this is contrary to what the Bible addresses. Does that make sense? So math, arithmetic, or trigonometry even is non-biblical. Although when you're taking the test, it feels unbiblical. Okay? It's, it's just not the, like, like you're not gonna find trigonometry in your Bible, okay? It doesn't mean that it's wrong or, or ungodly or immoral. It just means it's not in the Bible. So Jude refers to a non-biblical event. He refers to this event where, where Satan and Michael the archangel 
are contending with one another over the lifeless body of Moses. So when Moses passed away, something happened in the heavenlies where Satan, for some reason, wanted the body and Michael fought him for it. And he refers to it. It's a a non-biblical event. Now, this event was, was basically common knowledge in the first century. It's referred to in a work called The Assumption of Moses. And The Assumption of Moses is part of a group of works that are referred to as pseudo-epigraphial. That's a big word. We'll divide it down and make it simple. Pseudo means what? Fake. And grapha is the Greek word for writing. So pseudo-epigraphical is fake writing. And what pseudo-epigraphical books are, are books that claim to have been written by Bible characters, but clearly weren't written by Bible characters. And The Assumption of Moses is a book that claims to be a conversation between Moses and Joshua. And and, and Moses is giving these prophetic um, uh, statements Many of them are just paraphrases from other Bible accounts. And in this work, supposedly Moses is giving these prophetic statements to Joshua and he refers to this event. Now we know that it's not Moses because this work was written in the second century BC and Moses lived in the 15th century BC. So he'd been dead for 1300 years. Okay, so it's it's a fake work. Now, there's no reason to think that Jude is actually quoting from the assumption of Moses. The reality is this was common knowledge, so common that it found its way into this pseudo-epigraphical work and found its way into the book of Jude. And it'll play a part in Jude's warning. There's another work he refers to that is attributed to Enoch. It's also pseudo-epigraphical, meaning fake writings. Enoch is a very obscure character in the Bible. He finds his place in uh, in brevity in Genesis chapter five. And we're told simply that Enoch walked with God and was not because God took him. And so he's a man of intrigue. He's a, he's a man of mystery. Like, who is this guy? What does that mean? He, he walked with God and then God took him. And so all sorts of imagination gets filled into this verse. Um, it seems that he, along with one other character, Elijah, are the only two human beings to have ever stepped into heaven without going through the doorway of death. Now, that would be my choice, right? Like I, you know, I've, it's like uh, when, my, when my son Shane was very young, we, the, the four kids were together and I was doing one of those dad moments and I was really checking on how the Sunday school teachers were doing. And so I asked my boys, I said, hey, how does a person get to heaven? And I expect some, some relatively deep answers from my three or older children and not much out of Shane, silence. And then Shane looks at me like I was the dumbest human being on the planet 
And he looked at me, remember the question, how does a person get to heaven? And he looks at me, he goes, they die. <laughs> yeah, you pretty much nailed that. That's theology 101. There's, there's, like, there's not another way in unless, of course, you're Enoch or Elijah. And so because this guy walked with God and was not because God took him, he's a man of intrigue. And there was a fake writing associated with Enoch. And in this writing, um, uh, there, it's, it's eschatological. In other words, it's looking towards the future. And there's a statement that's made in the second chapter of this work. It's called the Book of Enoch. In the second chapter, it reads this way. While I read it, I'd like you to look at verse 14 and 15 of Jude. So you look at that and I'll read to you a quote from the book of Enoch. <clears throat> Behold, he comes with 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment upon them and destroy the wicked and reprove all the carnal for everything which the sinful and ungodly have done and committed against him. Do you see the similarity? And so this is what Jude is saying here is that actually did come from Jude. That came from Jude, how it made its way into this book, but it came from Jude and it's this promise of the coming of the Messiah. And this is consistent with what the Bible teaches. Revelation chapter 19 tells us what everything is moving towards. Revelation 19, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Jesus coming back to make all things right. So, um, in your handout, uh, you received, uh, there should be an outline there for you. The book outlines very simply, the first two verses introduce the book, um, three through 16, focus on the false teaching, 17 through 23, exhortations to the believers, and then the, the book closes with, with praise or doxology or promise. Um, because of the brevity of the book, we're gonna do our best to kind of walk through the majority of it. So let's take a look, verse one. We read, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Christ Jesus. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. So James, the half-brother of Jesus, is writing to an unnamed group of believers to encourage them in their relationship with the Lord. He refers to them as called, sanctified, and preserved. And these, these terms speak of the comprehensive work of God in the life of the believer. God calls us. You are a believer because God called you. In John chapter 6, Jesus put it like this. He said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So we come to God because God draws us to himself. The work of salvation is initiated by God himself. Paul tells us that this, that this calling began before we were born. In writing to the Ephesians, he said that God chose us in him before the foundations of the earth. And in Galatians chapter one, Paul said, it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me. 
which is very interesting because Paul did not come to faith in Christ until well into adulthood. Paul was likely in his late 20s, if not close to 30, before he came to faith in Christ. But he says, the call of God? Well, that happened even before time began. And it happened when I was in the womb, even though I didn't respond to it later. Now, evidence of God's call will show up in a person's life, and that's what a person responds to. They don't necessarily respond to the call that happened in the womb. They respond to evidences of that call. Listen to what John said, John, uh, 1 John 4, 19. He said, we love him because he what? First loved us. So God expresses his love to us and that excites in us love for God. So what is an evidence of the call of God on someone's life? It's a love for God. I, I, I think, I think that a person may begin to have love for God even before they are in relationship with God. I think it's possible for a person to say, I just, I love God so much. They're living outside of relationship with him, maybe even involved in practices that are in direct contrast to to what God has done for us, but there's something developing in them. And it's like, I wouldn't question, I'd say, yes, I really do think there's something inside of you, a sense of love for God. That love that you have for God is to draw you into relationship with God. We come into relationship with God when we put faith in Christ, in the work that he's done for us upon the cross. And so there's the call of God. And so Jude says, listen, he says, you have the call of God on your life. He wants you in relationship with himself. He goes on to say, and he sanctifies us. And this doctrine of sanctification is very important because it has to do with daily Christian living. The primary idea behind sanctification is the idea of dedication. In, 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 something that is sanctified is something that is devoted. We might illustrate that uh, in the Old Testament with the worship practices. And they were, all the worship practices centered around the tabernacle, later temple. And there were utensils that were used in the worship. And these utensils were dedicated for that purpose. They, weren't, they didn't have multiple purposes. You didn't use the spoon for cereal and for an offering. It was dedicated completely to the Lord. And because it was dedicated to the Lord, it was then purified. And in the same way, sanctification is we are dedicated to God. We ought to see ourselves as people who have been chosen by God and set apart for the very purposes of God. God has a plan and a purpose for our life. We step into that plan and purpose when we dedicate ourselves to Christ. Paul said, we have been created in Christ Jesus. Now for me, that was November of 1983. I'd been on the planet for over 17 years. I was created in the womb. I was was formed by God. I had certain capacities and abilities, height, uh, hair color, 
uh, certain mental capacities, my emotional sort of, uh, of structure of who I was. I was formed in the womb. I was created again on the day I met Jesus. And I was created on that day, Paul says, for good works that were foreordained by God for me to walk in. When I met Jesus and dedicated myself to him, I began to walk in the purposes for which God had created me. Sanctification is dedicating ourselves to God and then being purified for the purposes that God has for us. He, this, this sanctification is a process that will go on throughout our Christian experience. The moment we meet Jesus, our sins are forgiven and we're made clean. And then daily, we're made more like Jesus. In fact, Romans chapter eight, verse 29 says that God predestined us to conform us to the image of his son. So if somebody asks you like, hey, what's going on in your life? You say, well, I'm being conformed into the image of his son. And then I could ask, well, what's he using? What's the tool he's using right now? And don't blame your wife. What's the tool he's using right now to conform you into the image of his son? Now, there's no promise in scripture that, that we will become perfect in this life. There's no promise. We're going to unfortunately struggle with the weakness of our flesh until the end. But we do have the promise that when we are with Jesus, we'll be completed. In 1 John chapter three, he writes, beloved, we are now the children of God. It has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. The psalmist said that he would be satisfied when he awoke in God's likeness. So we've been called, we're being sanctified, and then he says we're being preserved. And the idea of preserved is that we're being kept. In 1 Peter 1, we, Peter talked about how we're kept by the power of God for salvation ready to be re revealed in the last time. In, in John chapter 10, Jesus said, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. Our perseverance is not dependent on our ability to hold on to God, but is dependent upon his ability to hold on to us. And the weaker you feel, the more you can lean into the strength of God. So what an incredible way to start this book. He says, oh, who are you guys? Well, you're called from before time, from in the womb. God's called you, he knows your name, he's got a plan for your life, and he's sanctified you. You've been washed in the blood of Jesus and are in this process, and this process is gonna carry on to the end. And when you feel like you can't make it, you understand it's him holding you, not you holding him. Continuing, verse three, he begins with these, this warning. Uh, we already read through this, this warning about contending for the faith. And he says that this is because there are those who creep in. Look at verse four. For certain men have crept in unnoticed. Crept in unnoticed. So if, if words, you know, verbs, it's an action, would then, would then illustrate a, a person. If a, a person has crept in, that makes them a, a creep, okay? So... <laughs> He's warning about creeps. He says these guys have crept 
in. And it implies that they have come from within. The danger he's warning about is not the danger that's happening outside the church. He's not here talking about, about the secular world and their view of God or morality. He's talking about within the, within the walls of the church. And he says that there's a warning. Paul said the same thing in, in Acts 20. He said that from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things or twisted things to draw people after themselves. Now in verse four, he tells us that these creeps have committed two heinous errors. He says, first, they turn the grace of God to lewdness. These, he says, watch out for those who turn the grace of God to lewdness. Now, grace is one of the chief character traits of God. As God reveals himself to us in the pages of his word, he says, one of the primary traits that I want you to know about myself is that I am gracious. And grace speaks of the giving nature of God. That is, it's God's desire to give what is best to human beings. And it's God's desire to keep us from that which is harmful. It's his grace. And scripture teaches us that his grace is motivated by his love for us and his grace is expressed in his willingness to forgive us. So God is gracious, he, he wants to give to us because he loves us and this grace causes him to even be willing to forgive us when we fail. Now they, these who crept in, they viewed grace as freedom to sin. They turned it into lewdness. And lewdness is a word that speaks of unbridled or unrestrained sin. It's usually associated to sexual immorality. That is to say, God has put confines upon sexuality. And lewdness is to say, I'm, I'm breaking these chains. I'm breaking these confines. I'm breaking these restrictions. And I want to behave however I want in the realm of sexual activity. That's the word lewdness. It's a word that carries the idea of giving myself license. Can I, can I suggest to you, grace is not a license. License allows a person a freedom to do what they couldn't do without a license. So it's illegal to drive. Oh, unless you have a license. Now that you have a license, you're free to do what you can't do without the license. Make sense? I suggest, I could ask the doctors in the room, but I, I suggest that it's illegal to operate on somebody without a license. I, I'm pretty sure. I, there's a fine line when you have a house guest and you take stitches out of their head. I'm, I'm pretty sure that might break the rule, but you know, there's, this, there's, there's a license, right? You, you have to have, I'm not allowed to operate on someone but a license gives me the freedom to do that. Grace is not a license that allows us to sin. A better way to view grace is grace is a key. And this key sets us free from the shackles of self-destructive sin. That's what grace is designed to do. Grace isn't designed to give me freedom to disobey God. Grace is designed to set me free from the sin that destroys me and my relationship with God. John Newton was a slave trader. 
by all his own personal testimony, he was a horrible man. And he encountered Jesus and he gave his life to Christ. And he wrote probably the most well-known song in the world besides Happy Birthday. He wrote Amazing Grace. And in this, in this song, he is, he is extolling the virtues of grace. And he's celebrating the freedom that grace brings, not the license that it allows. Listen to some of the words of the song. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. It was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares I've already come, and grace has brought me safe this far, and grace will lead me home. Grace is not a license to sin. It's a key to set me free from sin. At the end of of Newton's life, he preached a sermon, and I love this line. He said, my memory is nearly gone. (laughs) We're all heading there. My memory's nearly gone. He said, but I remember two things. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great saver. What a wonderful statement. Now, not only do these guys turn grace to lewdness, but they also deny Christ. That's the end of verse four. Now that doesn't mean that they're atheists. What it means is that they are altering the Christ of scripture to fit their own image of Christ. This is something God addressed way back in the Decalogue or the 10 Commandments. God says, in stone, God gave certain rules to mankind. And he started out, he said, there are no other gods but me, and you're not allowed to change my shape. You're not allowed to make idols. You don't get to shape me, I get to shape you, is the idea. And they're denying Christ. Verse five, he says to them, I wanna remind you, though you once knew, that the Lord, having saved the people out of Egypt, destroyed those who didn't believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, he left to their abode. He is reserved, or, but left their own abode, abode. He reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, in similar manner of these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange forth, flesh, are set forth as an example of suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So what he does is he says, hey, I want to remind you of three events in the Old Testament. First is the Exodus. The second is the fall in the angelic realm, and the third is the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And these all have this in common. They rebelled against God, and God brought judgment. All three have this in common. They rebelled against God, and God brought judgment. Then he says, likewise, these dreamers, that's verse eight, Likewise, these dreamers, he's saying um, uh, these false teachers, these creeps that have crept in, these who are changing the grace of God to lewdness and denying Christ, he says, likewise, they defile the flesh, they reject authority, they speak evil of dignitaries. 
Then he refers to that weird incident with Satan uh, and Michael the archangel. And then we jump ahead to verse 11. And he says, woe to them. They've gone in the way of Cain. They've run in the error of Balaam and in the rebellion of Korah. And in those cases, we have Cain is, a, is an individual who rejected God's way of salvation. And Balaam is an individual who would sell his position as a voice for God for profit. And Korah is an individual who would not stay in the lane that God had given to him. And he says, these guys are guilty of the same thing. Moving on, he then says to them in verse 12, he's going to use five illustrations to talk about these false teachers. He says, these are spots in the love feast. Uh, They are clouds without water. They are trees without fruit. They are raging waves of the sea, and they are wandering stars. So he uses these five illustrations. The first one's really interesting. Um, He says, they are spots in the love feast. The love feast would be the gathering of the believers. Does anybody's Bible read a different word other than spots? Blemishes? Anyone read reef? Reef? That's the word. They're reefs in the love feast. Now, if you're an English teacher, the the New Testament writers drive you crazy because they are guilty of mixing metaphors all the time. Here is probably the worst example, (laughs) okay? He says, they are reefs in a love feast. You go, wait, what? That's why it's translated spots in the love feast or blemishes because that makes more sense. But that's not what he says. He says, they're reefs in the love feast. A reef, in this case, is not like if, like if you're a surfer, you go, oh, reefs. Love, or you're a diver, you're like, oh, reefs, man. But you're a, if you're a, a nautical person, you're a sailor, a merchant, you go, oh, reefs. That's bad news, right? They're destructive. He says, these guys are destroying the love feast. People that have come together, but here's what's happening. They've come in and they're promoting lewdness and they're denying Christ. And they're destroying the fellowship of God's people. And then he uses these illustrations so vivid. They're like, they're like clouds without water. They promise what they can't and, and can't provide. They're, they're fruitless trees. He says, they're raging waves of the sea. They're destructive. And then finally he says, and they're like wandering stars. Again, if you're navigating, can't navigate with a moving star. That's why it's so challenging for a person to try to navigate without the, without the light of God's word. Isn't it wonderful? God has given us his word to help us navigate through life. He goes on. He says to them in verse 11 um, that, that Enoch prophesied a, a, about the coming of Jesus. And then jump with me to verse 17. He said, but you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of the Lord Jesus. And then he says, but you, beloved, build yourself up in the most holy faith. And then he gives a list of things that will help a person regardless of their situation. So if your Christian experience is is that you're a brand new Christian, you have no background in Christianity, what he's gonna tell you will help you grow in the Lord. 
If you're, an, if you're an aging believer and your relationship with the Lord has grown cold, what he's telling you will help you grow in the Lord. If you're a struggling believer, you keep falling into sin, he's gonna give you steps that are gonna help you through that. If you're a bored believer and you've lost passion for the things of God, he's gonna tell you things that are gonna help you. Let's take a look at them. He says there in verse 20, he says, Uh, build yourself up in your most holy faith, pray in the spirit, verse 21, keep yourself in the love of God, look for the mercy of Christ, and in verse 22, and have compassion on others and save them as though you were pulling them out of the fire. Listen, if you devote yourself to prayer, focusing on God's love, extending mercy to others, and seeking to rescue people into a relationship with Jesus Christ, God's gonna bring a lot of cure to your relationship with the Lord. And then finally, for time's sake, let's just look at verse 24, but we're gonna do this. Let's stand together, and we're gonna wrap up our time in the book of Jude looking at verses 24 and 25 together. Such, a, such great promises. He says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Let's pause there for just a moment. Have you stumbled lately? He says, now come to him, the one who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless, before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Now, things can look faultless if the lights are dim enough. You go into a restaurant and there's very poor lighting, you count on the fact that the food might not be that good. They might be trying to hide something from you, right? I mean, you you can hide fault by dimming light. He says he's going to present you faultless in the presence of his glory. There's nothing more brilliant or radiant than the glory of God. He says it's this purifying work that he'll do in our lives. And then he says, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty and dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. And so, Lord, we offer ourselves tonight to the one who is able to keep us from falling, the one who has called us and sanctified us and preserving us, the one who is able to present us faultless in the very glory of God's presence. And so we come to you, Lord. We offer ourselves to you. We pray that you would work in our lives. We pray that you would show yourself more real to us We pray that our lives would be a testimony to those around us of your love and your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Jim Gallagher. If you enjoy the message, you can learn more about Pastor Jim's ministry by visiting www.ccvb.net.